of us, the attitudes we should have, the reactions we should have, and the reactions we find are contrary to human nature, contrary to our nature, but they are in line with God's nature. Now, some people have said, and it's a Protestant idea from Matthew 5.17, that he didn't come to destroy the law of the prophets. He came to full, not to destroy, but to fulfill them. And their idea is that since he lived them properly, perfectly, and did it for us, we don't have to do it. But I think that the context itself throughout these three chapters <coughs> begs to differ with that in that the whole context shows that each of these commandments is not done away with but made even more demanding. But where before it was just in the physical for the most part, now it also has to be in mind and spirit and attitude. Uh, so it makes it far more demanding than it did in the past. Also, First John 2, 6 comes into play, which says that those that say they love him should walk even as he walked. So what he lived, what he did, what he taught, is what we should be living, doing, thinking, and talking. A lot of people say, well, a lot of that stuff from the Old Testament, it's done away with. No, it isn't done away with. It's brought forward, it is explained in even clearer terms, and made far more demanding than it was in the Old Testament, so that it is not just physical, but is also mental, emotional, and thereby spiritual. So, the whole context disagrees with the Protestants. They try to take that one verse out of context, as normally they do with anything, and get their way but it just doesn't work that way. And in fact, the two areas that we covered last week, uh, beginning in Matthew 5, verse 27, is one that shows that in the past uh, you couldn't commit adultery, but now if you even look upon a woman with lust or covetousness in your heart and mind, then that is the same as adultery. Now, some may have thought that I was only addressing a few people. Uh, most of the comments I heard from that sermon were that it was helpful and, and uh, was right on target and what was needed. And others may have felt that uh, I was just talking to a few people or that I was the one with the problem. And uh, I, I guess we just have a communication problem a little bit. I thought I made it very clear I was talking to all the men uh, when it talks about lusting with the eye or with the hand doing the wrong thing and how those things have to be put away from us. I thought that included all men. <clears throat> uh, even if we have a closet gay somewhere that I don't know about, I think I cited Romans 1 to show that that perversion is even worse. Uh, by far, in God's judgment, and what he did with Sodom and Gomorrah is a testimony to that. So perhaps we have uh, someone like that, or someone with no testosterone that this might not apply to, but I kind of doubt it. Because it is a general overall problem. It's mentioned throughout the Bible, and there are rules that God made about it. So it's not just my opinion. Uh, it's not just uh, something that I have as a pet peeve by any means. It's something that men deal with and, and have to. And then 
The other side of that coin is that the women have their responsibility to be sure they dress modestly and not revealingly or seductively in any way, but so that they are covered and modestly covered and are easily embarrassed, as we read, uh, if they show themselves in a way that is not appropriate or proper. And it isn't me that has a problem with that. God, and we read these, maybe someone wasn't listening, I don't know. God says, if you want to show yourself, I will strip you naked. Uh, we read we read that in in Jeremiah in Isaiah three, and there are many many more scriptures about it that I did not get to. Uh, read Proverbs one through six, men, uh, if you think that this wasn't talking to you. So I thought I covered it for all men and for all women. I didn't uh, think that I did it just for a few, or that I was uh, beating a horse that was a pet peeve for me. It's a pet peeve for God. And the scriptures are very, very plain about that. So I, I hope we can communicate clearly enough to understand who is being uh, talked to and about and where the needs are. <clears throat> it's really easy to dismiss it and blame it as somebody else's problem, but God doesn't allow that, and uh, he makes it very clear in his scripture what he has as an attitude about these things. And it's right here in the so-called Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> Uh, it's not First Daryl 3.6, it's Matthew 5, 6, and 7, along with an awful lot of other scriptures that go with that. Uh, we also covered the subject of divorce and adultery, uh, and in Deuteronomy 24, it was you could get divorced as a man, put away a wife for pretty much any reason, and uh, he narrows it down here, to two categories. One is pornea or immorality, fornication, adultery, uh, homosexuality, and so on, as one category. And the second is mentioned not here by Christ, but included in Scripture further on, where Paul made a judgment and God accepted it in 1 Corinthians 7, that if you have an unconverted and antagonistic mate who will not allow you to obey God, uh, without fighting you and opposing you at every turn, then you can also uh, be divorced and not be bound. Not under bondage means not bound, and not bound means free. But only to marry within the church. He makes it very clear we are not to become unequally yoked with unbelievers. But if God called one in the family and not the other, then he takes responsibility for not having called both and if one is antagonistic and unconverted, has to be both, then there is grounds for divorce as well and not being bound to that person. So this is a much higher standard than was legislated in the Old Testament through Moses. Uh, Christ himself narrows it to one and then accepts the one situation that Paul made a judgment on by putting it in Scripture. So that, too, is valid now. It's not Pauline theology, as some might say. It's in the Word of God, and thereby is valid and endorsed by God. <clears throat> All right. Those two examples show that it's a much higher standard and that the context does not lie, but that all these things not only are binding, but they are made even more binding and in uh, more specific ways. 
All right, let's go down to verse 33 of Matthew 5 then and pick it up where we left off last time. <clears throat> verse 33. Again, you have heard that it has been said by them of old time, that is, by uh, the Scriptures written by Moses, the reference here is from Leviticus 19 and verse 12, been said by them of old time, in the Old Testament in other words, you shall not forswear yourself, but shall perform unto the eternal your oaths. If you make any oath, it is to God, not to mankind. But I say to you, <clears throat> see, you, you couldn't swear uh, in the past, but you could swear to God. He says, but I say to you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, and I think that implies anything on the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. So we're not to swear by anything, and of course people do that constantly now. Uh, he says, you, you shall not swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Maybe Grecian formula you can artificially, but uh, not actually. And we shouldn't be deceiving anyway. <clears throat> So, how can you swear something that you will do? You may not even be alive a minute or five from then, but let your communication be yes, yes, or no, no, for whatsoever is more than these comes of evil. So what God expects of us is not to have any pretense, to be truthful, not to have any guile, but to be straightforward and Whatever we say, we mean, and we will back it up and do what we say we will do. That is the way you build trust in relationships. And human life is really all about relationships. No man is an island. No man lives alone. And God has put us here to learn to live together in peace according to his ways so that we might live peacefully and lovingly throughout all eternity. That's one of the main and primary goals and purposes of this human boot camp in preparation to become God. <clears throat> he needs to know and know that he knows what we stand for, what we believe in, and what we will do. So we don't need to swear on a stack of Bibles. We don't need to swear by our chinny-chin-chin, as the children's story goes, or the hair of our chinny-chin-chin, I guess it is or by the hair of our head, or anything else. But see, we teach children, even in those little nursery rhymes, which we think are so innocent, to swear. And <clears throat> that is not the way that God wants us to be. He wants a yes or a no. A handshake should be as good as your word. It's just like writing your name on a check. You're saying to someone, I guarantee, by my name, by everything I stand for, that this is good. And if it's a hot check, you are lying, and your word is no good. Uh, it isn't a, in that sense, a misdemeanor. Your whole reputation, your whole being, is represented by you signing your name to a check and saying, yes, this is good. Now, if it's not going to be good, <clears throat> then you shouldn't sign it, and you should tell someone, I, I'm sorry, I just don't have the money right now. I can't pay it, uh, rather than trying to save face by writing it, and then later on they find out 
it isn't any good. Your word isn't any good because when you sign that, your signature means this is good. My word is good. Whatever I do is true, it's right, it's good, it's pure, it's truthful. There's no guile in me. I'm not trying to hide anything from you. This is a good check. And it should be that way in every part of our lives. We don't need to swear. <clears throat> we just need to say yes, and everybody can count on that, or say no, and everyone can count on that. It's very simple, really. It's just hard for us to accomplish so that we are totally true, totally truthful, and therefore we have integrity. So when you say something, before you say yes, mean it. And if you say no, mean it. And then there will be no confusion, will there? Verse 38. <clears throat> well, that doesn't mean that we can't at some point change our mind if we're making a bad judgment or make a bad statement, but we need to go talk to that person and say, you know, I said yes or I said no, but I got to thinking about that, and uh, here's some scriptures that I didn't think of, and it changes my view on that, so therefore I'm changing this from yes to no or from no to yes, <clears throat> depending on what wisdom dictates. But people should be able to count on us. We say we'll do something, we need to either get it done or bust our behinds trying to get it done, and then if we just simply cannot and we're not up to it, then we need to go to them and say, I'm sorry, I've done my best and I just cannot. On the other hand, uh, then before we say yes or we say no, we need to be sure that we have thought about it and can do what we say we will do or won't do what we say we won't do. Uh, there are scriptures about that, that uh, you should count the cost ahead of time, whether you can do something or cannot do it. What is it going to cost you to do it? And then, once you've given your word, find a way to do it, because you have given your word. <clears throat> okay, moving on to verse 38. You've heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Or a tooth. And that's quoted from Exodus 21:24. So they had heard that it said that, and indeed, it did say that. So, if someone put someone's eye... They had to have their eye put out. If they knocked your tooth out, they had to have their tooth knocked out. If they killed someone, they themselves had to be executed. Well, that was the law. That was the rule in the Old Testament. It is still the rule today for this nation that has not been offered the New Covenant. Only a few of us have been. And God will judge this nation by the physical laws of the Old Testament because that is the one's those are the laws that this nation is still under, except for the spiritual nation, the church, that he has called out of this world. So he can come in to this country and do the things that he says he's going to do in the prophecies based on the communication in the Old Testament. You and I are held to a higher standard, a higher covenant, with higher promises. And as we heard in the sermonette, uh, God will purify in the past, you had to purify yourself. The priests had to purify themselves. Now that we go to God and are purified through the blood of Christ. And he will purify, it says there in Malachi. 
He is a purifier. And it is through his blood that we are purified, not through ritual washings and ordinances. So even the washings, the ordinances of purification, are not done away with. They're simply changed and put on a higher level. And we can do it through prayer, through changing our approach and our attitudes, whereas before you had to go through all kinds of rituals to accomplish the same thing. So in some respects, it's much simpler uh, today, much, much simpler. There was one sacrificed, uh, sacrificed by the Savior that now covers everything, whereas before you had all kinds of animal sacrifices to cover various infractions and even thanksgiving. And now we don't need to do that. We can thank God through prayer, through our Savior. So it's simplified, streamlined, made much, much simpler in approach, and yet harder to accomplish from the standpoint of us bringing every thought into the captivity of Christ, not being able to allow our minds to go where they might want to go so long as we don't physically go over a line. So, it's been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that was quoted from Exodus 21. But I say to you, okay, here's, here's the upgrade. I say to you, whosoever shall smite you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, if he had smitten you on the cheek before, you had the right to smite him back on the cheek. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, cheek for cheek, whatever the infraction might be. Now he says, don't do that anymore. Whosoever will smite you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, you know that's against human nature. That's against everything in us. It's against everyone who was ever attacked, wherever it might have been, in the schoolyard, in a bar, uh, wherever it might be. It is against our nature to take a long swallow and a deep breath and turn the other cheek and allow them to hit it also if they want to. Your natural carnal reaction is to hit back, to uh, to hit them in the cheek, but that's not what God says. Do we just have to have the last word? That's what he's telling us here. You don't have to have the last word. If a man will sue you at the law, take away your coat. Let him have your cloak also. That isn't normal and natural for us. Anybody sues us at law, we want to get a lawyer and we want to take everything away from him that he's got or preserve everything we have. And we will fight and fight and fight and pay lawyers within the system to try to keep them from taking what it is that we might have against our nature to to let it just go away. But that's actually, and I don't see any way to twist this. I don't see how any way that he was beating around the bush here, uh, he was simply saying, in so many words, if someone takes you to law to sue you and takes your coat, give him the rest of your clothes or your cloak as well. That's the way he wants to be. Then let him have it, and God will take care of you is the implication here. We'll see that as we go on down. Whosoever shall compel you to go a mile, go with him too. Now, in history, it is said and stated in the commentaries that uh, under the Roman rule there, if a Roman soldier or a citizen of Rome uh, asked you to carry his baggage for him for a mile, you had to do it. 
uh, and Christ was saying, go ahead and carry it two miles for him. That would be against our nature, too, because we don't want to be told what to do, and we don't want to do anything against our will. But he says our attitude should be that if he says, you got to carry my bags for a mile, then we would say, okay, I'll do it, and uh, can, I, can, can I carry them two miles for you? How many of us would volunteer that? Very rare. Sometimes even when we're asked to serve, we have an attitude we have to deal with as to whether we want to accomplish it or not. And that isn't because we're demanded or commanded we have to, but we are to be of a ready mind, willing, able, helpful, ready to serve, ready to do whatever it might be that someone needs done and might ask of us or infer that they would like to or or hint, uh, then we should be ready and willing. Now, there are times when we have to take other scriptures into account, like if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Uh, Paul made it very clear that freeloading was not Christian and that that wasn't the right thing to do. So we have to make decisions sometimes. We should be ready to serve, ready to help, ready to give. But at some point, people do have to be responsible for themselves, and we shouldn't do everything for them. <clears throat> God makes it very clear that not only uh, shouldn't they eat if they don't work, but we shouldn't fix them if they don't work. But on the other hand, we need to be ready and willing anytime someone needs something to say, okay, I'll come help. I'll come do that. Give to him that asks you. And from him that would borrow of you, turn not you away. So we should be ready and willing. If someone needs something, has a need, and they wish to borrow from us, he says, don't turn them away. Go ahead and loan to them what they have need of. Now, we should also be sure that we put ourselves in a position so that we are able to lend to those who need to borrow because they have not managed things properly perhaps so that they have what they need but need to borrow someone else. That's why God made very clear to Israel that they were to be lenders and not borrowers. But that is the way it is to be. We read that in Bible study in Deuteronomy not too long ago. It's just the wrong principle for us to be in debt. Uh, it's easy right now to say, well, the whole system is going to go down pretty soon, so it's okay to go ahead and borrow and then not have to pay it back. Well, that may be the case, and you might not have to pay it back, and I think it's Jeremiah that even makes a comment, if they're still alive, pay them. So uh, maybe when this thing comes down, some, some of our people who are our creditors uh, won't even be around, and you don't pay he who is not around. But that is not the way God intends us to live the way, and to think. God intends us to be in a position where we can loan and not to be in a position where we need to borrow. So we need to be thinking that through and trying to put ourselves in that circumstance. If he told the whole nation of Israel to be lenders, not borrowers, then he expects us to be the same way uh, in our personal lives, that we should work at getting to the point 
that we are lenders, not borrowers. And whatever is necessary to put us in that position, we need to bite the bullet and accomplish that. Now, everything in the society is against that, uh, and, and they, they want us to become creditors, our, our debtors. They want to loan us money. They want to put us in debt. They want to be able to foreclose on our houses and our cars and so on. <clears throat> in this nation, Israel, America, has gone against God's instruction to Israel in Deuteronomy. And we went from the greatest lending nation to now the greatest uh, debtor nation on earth. We have flip-flopped and gone from what God said to just the opposite of what God desires. And most of the people in this country, the majority of them today, are following along in that same path, that same way of living, and it is a very stressful way to live, and people have to worry about bills and how they're going to make their payments and so on. It's just simply better not to buy than to put yourself in debt and have to worry about it uh, God intended us to live a different way. So if we've made, if we've lived the wrong way, if we've done things wrong and made some decisions contrary to the way God would have us live, then we need to work ourselves out of that hole, and it doesn't happen in a day, in a week. Uh, you have to work at it <clears throat> to get yourself to the point where you would be able to lend rather than to borrow. It's the way God would have us live. You have heard that it has been said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, <coughs> excuse me, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Here again, uh, he's quoting from Luke. And I, I've got James 2, 8 written in my margin here. Let me go back there. James 2. And verse 8. If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convicted of the law as transgressors. <clears throat> And then he goes on to name some of the Ten Commandments, showing that that royal law is the Ten Commandments. It's God's law. He's the royalty in the, in the universe. But we are to actually love our enemies. That is not our normal reaction, is it? Somebody is against you and saying evil and uh, scurrilous things about you. Your immediate reaction is a human carnal being is to fight back, to say things about them, to demand apologies, to demand reparation. Uh, no, it says bless them that curse you. Somebody gives you a good cussing out, uh, demeans your name, talks behind your back. Vengeance belongs to God. Vengeance is mine, says the Eternal. Vengeance does not belong to you. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. So it's up to him to take care of those who might curse us or that might hate us. And we not only have a responsibility not to hate back or to seek vengeance, but actually to take a positive approach and pray for them, which might despitefully use us and persecute us. And praying for them does not imply praying they're in a car accident. 
praying for them means for their good, for their benefit, for God's blessing upon them, and that's difficult to do. David wrestled with some of those issues, you might recall, in the Psalms, where he asked God to bring trouble and vengeance and hurt and harm to some of his enemies. Well, that's being changed here to a different way. Do good to them if they hate you. And, and, you know, how carnal are we? How converted are we? We're supposed to be transformed, converted, meaning changed. And it's a change from that human reaction. You know, you say, well, I'm normal. I'm natural. Well, that's right. But normal and natural as a human being is not godly. So this goes against everything in you. Everything that we stand for as a human being uh, is against this. Now you say God's making it easier here and saying easy things and you don't have to fulfill the law. I'd say this one's really pushing it. Because living up to verse 44 is a lifelong task. And it takes an awful lot of changing in your thinking, your emotions, and your reactions. We cannot live by emotion. We cannot live by our feelings. We have to live by the ways of God. And our feelings, our our motivations, our emotions cannot be trusted unless they're godly emotions. And God loves those who curse him. He does good to them that hate him. Let's read on and we'll see that. Verse 45. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. So he says, I love my enemies. I bless them that curse me. I do good to them that hate me. Well, how does he do that? He goes on to say, For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good. Just because the sun comes up in the morning and shines on you does not make you just. You might be evil, or you might be good. The sun's going to come up and shine on you regardless. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Sometimes people think if they're getting rain, they must be living right. Well, that's not necessarily true, because God says it rains on the just, the unjust, the evil, the good. Uh, He sends rain to the earth, and whether or not we're getting rain is not necessarily the criteria as to whether we are just or unjust. Sometimes I watch rain coming across the desert, and sometimes it falls on Colorado City and doesn't fall on us. Sometimes it falls to the east or the south of us, doesn't fall on us. Sometimes it rains on us and doesn't rain on them. And it is no barometer where the rainstorms might happen to fall that particular day, whether we are just or unjust. Now, God does promise a former and a latter rain to his people who will obey him, but meantime, he's got a system set up, and it doesn't matter whether you're just or unjust. There are a lot of unjust people right here in Portland where I happen to be today, and it rains a lot here. There may be a few righteous here, and it doesn't make any difference. And then he goes further to explain, verse 46, for if you love them which love you, what reward do you have? It's easy to love somebody that loves you. It's easy to agree with someone who agrees with you. It's easy to smile at someone who smiles at you. 
Do not even the publicans the same? Now, they were low on the list in Christ's feelings and about their righteousness. Even the publicans, unrighteous people, but they love those who love them, love them. If you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Everybody salutes their brethren, their brothers or their brethren or those they're close to, people they like, people in their family maybe. Do not even the publicans do that? Yeah, they do that too. They like the people they like, the people they're close to, the people that are relatives with. But if there's somebody they don't like, they would ignore them. They might walk across the street to avoid them. We can't do that. We have to love everyone, whether they're just or unjust, good or bad. And if they are not neutral, but hate us, maybe curse us, swear against us, blame us, or whatever problems might arise, we are to ignore that, let it go as water off a duck's back, and pray for them, that they might be called, that they might be blessed, that they might be learning God's ways. So this is laying it on us pretty heavy here. Verse 48, Be you therefore perfect or mature, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is mature or perfect. So he expects us to actually live up to this. It isn't something he just wrote here, and it sounds nice, but you don't have to do. This is what he expects of us. Think in your own life how easy it is when someone curses you or knights you in the back, or talks behind your back, to have a bad attitude toward them. That just comes really easy, doesn't it? It's really hard to do it the way God says to do it. Chapter 6. <clears throat> Take heed, or be careful, be warned, or be aware. Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them, Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father, which is in heaven. If you're doing things that are good for other people, and you're doing it to keep score, or doing it to appear righteous, or to polish boots, or whatever term we might use, then God says you have no reward of your Father, which is in heaven. Your reward, you see, is of men. You're doing things to them or for them, to receive goodwill from them or to be liked by them or be accepted by them and that's the reward you get that's all the reward you get you get no reward from your father in heaven so what he's discussing here is our motivations you see it isn't a matter of whether somebody needs a ditch dug and you jump in and dig the ditch like it would have been in the Old Testament it's a matter of are you doing it because it needs to be done. It's the righteous thing to do. It's what God would have you do to be willing, to be ready, to be serving, to be ready to serve or whatever. And you're willing to do those things sometimes without even receiving recognition. I've seen a lot of people that would do good things and they made absolutely sure that those things were recognized. Well, that's all the reward they got was the recognition of men, because God will not reward that. He says it here very clearly. So God checks the heart. He ponders our hearts. He ponders our motivations. Now, we question each other's motives a lot of times. Uh, but 
God also questions our motivations, and he is able to discern them. Sometimes it's hard for us to know what a man's heart really is saying. Uh, we as humans can judge too harshly. We can judge too easily sometimes for people we like and judge pretty harshly people we don't like. But God considers all our motivations, and he will reward us if our motivations are pure and right, true and good, and our motivation truly is to serve, not to receive accolades or uh, public acceptance or rewards from men, because that's then is the only reward we get. So he says, therefore, when you do your alms, when you do good things, when you do favors, when you help people, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. That's the reward they get, is the glory of men, but not the glory of God because their motivation is wrong. When you do alms, let not your left hand know what your right hand does. In other words, be ready to serve with both hands and don't keep score. Somebody on your right wants this and somebody on your left wants that, then you don't communicate one hand to the other about how good your right hand is or how good your left hand is <clears throat> or to other people about what a wonderful servant you are. God just says, quietly serve, do what you can, uh, help where you can, don't keep score, just help. But it's human to want to keep score. Well, I did this for you, so you got to do that for me. And I worked more hours for you than you did for me, or whatever the, the score that you're keeping might be. That's what this verse is telling us. Don't keep score. Just always be willing and ready to help. Doesn't allow for bragging either, does it? You just quietly do what needs done. That your alms may be in secret. You know, if we if we want to take somebody some food, we like to go knock on the door and make sure that we receive a thank you for having brought that food, maybe. Maybe it would be better a lot of times just to go in the dark of night, set it on the porch and go away, and no one would know where it came from. So it is indeed done in secret. Now, everything you do can't be done in secret, but it's a principle here. You're not there to be bragging or showing off. Uh, we're there to be helping and doing what we can because that's the way God is. And your Father, which sees in secret, he sees day and night, he knows what's going on, shall reward you openly. So we don't keep score. We don't do things to be seen of men or to polish boots or whatever. We We do them because they need to be done. And then we trust God to take care of us. And I would rather have God's reward, hadn't you, than just to have the accolades or the praise of men. And when you pray, you shall not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. And that reward is to be seen of men and then to think that they're spiritual. But that's not the way we're to pray. It's not the way we're to worship. Verse 6, When you pray, enter your closet. When you've shut your door, pray to your Father, which is in secret. 
and your father would seize in secret shall reward you openly. What it amounts to is we need to live our religion, not just show off uh, when we pray, when we fast. I know some people, every time they fast, they got to tell somebody they're fasting because they want it to be known they're fasting. Uh, he even uses that example, I think, further here. Uh, yeah, he, he talks about fasting on down later in the chapter. So we'll get to that. But we're not to be making an outward show. That doesn't mean that we don't pray in public. There are plenty of examples in the Bible where Christ prayed with his disciples, uh, where prayers were made in public in, I think it's Nehemiah uh, or Ezra, uh, where they prayed openly and as a congregation. But generally, our prayer, our devotion to God, is something that should be between us and God, not something to brag about, because... What is bragging? It's vanity, it's ego, it's selfishness, and God resists the proud. So if you pray and, and your object is to let other people know how spiritual you are by seeing you do that, then God resists you. Verse 7, but when you pray, <clears throat> use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking repeating the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, we can use Catholic examples of their trips around the rosary or, or the beads or whatever, uh, and others who say the same thing over and over again, <clears throat> their chants. <laughs> but we can even fall into that not having those of just mouthing the same things over and over with no real meaning, with no real feeling where our prayers just sort of become something we repeat and go through automatically and mouthing the same things. Uh, and we aren't really speaking from the heart, but just from the memory. So they think they'll be heard for their much speaking. Be therefore, or be not you therefore, like them, for your Father knows what things you have need of before you ask Him. Now that doesn't mean we can't be persistent. The example of the widow and the unjust judge shows we can be persistent. But, you know, that woman had a real need, and her pleas to the judge in that example were very sincere, they were very heartfelt, and she felt that need. There was emotion involved, in other words. So our prayers ought to be that way. Go back and read uh, a lot of the prayers in the Psalms from David, and the ones that are recorded there are very deep, very meaningful, and he felt them very deeply. He wasn't just mouthing words over and over. Now, maybe David did do that at times. I don't know. Being human, I'm probably pretty certain that he did. Maybe he uh, tended to pray at times and just sort of go through his list, and maybe that's one of the reasons he got way off track a few times in his life because he really wasn't praying from the heart, trying to change, trying to be transformed, trying to be like his Father in heaven, but he was sort of going through the motions. And it just became, in that sense, vain repetition and didn't keep him on the straight and narrow. Uh, we have to pray in such a way that God will hear. You know, it's, it's like sometimes you talk to people and, and they're just talking automatically. They're just saying something and there's no real meaning or reason to say it. They're just talking. Or sometimes when kids cry, uh, sometimes 
it's because of real pain or real hurt or real need. And sometimes they'll cry just to be crying, just to be heard. Uh, and you can tell the difference a lot of times just by the tone of whether it's a real hurt or pain or whether it's just an attention getter. Uh, parents should be able to pick up the difference there. We used to have an expression, okay, if you're going to cry, I'll give you something to really cry about, rather than just whining and blubbering and crying with no real need to do so. Well, we do have needs, and we do need to pray, but we need to be sure that those prayers are fervent and effectual as much as we possibly can, rather than just being things that we do because we ought to. <clears throat> then he says, verse 9, After this manner, therefore, pray you. So he gives us an example here. This isn't a, a whole prayer that ought to just be repeated by rote over and over and over because even it then becomes same repetition. But here's the approach and the attitude and the manner to pray. Our Father, which is in heaven. Now it might be our tendency to pray, My Father and make our prayers more selfish. But notice through here a trend. I'll, I'll just skip down to it a little bit. Verse 9, Our Father. Verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread. Verse 12, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. So, when we pray to God... It shouldn't all be selfish. It shouldn't be, deliver me, give me my bread, give me my whatever it is that you happen to want that day. But the sample prayer, the manner we should be praying is, is as a body, the body, the church. And when we're praying, we're praying that the whole body be delivered, the whole body be blessed, the whole body be forgiven, not just us personally, because prayer can real easily become very, very selfish. So I don't think Christ made a mistake here when he emphasized our and us, not me and my, that we need to think beyond just me, and even in our prayer to God, we need to be thinking about us as a body, as his people, as his disciples. Remember, this whole section here was taught to or preached to his disciples. Others came, others found them, others listened, and they were impressed by what was said, as we'll find down in the end of verse uh, chapter 7. But his intent was for this to be for the disciples. So James, Peter, John, all of them were supposed, supposed to pray our Father and give us our daily bread. So we should pray individually as a body, for the body. That will help us from being too selfish. So let's go through this a little bit. Our Father, which are in heaven, hallowed be your name. The right form, the right beginning of a prayer isn't, Oh God in heaven, help me. Uh, our approach should be, first of all, to recognize the, the power, the majesty, the might, how hallowed how righteous, how holy he is. And this gets our perspective right in beginning a prayer. We don't start immediately begging for our needs and our wants to be fulfilled, but we go to God and approach him as the majesty, the ruler, the creator of the entire universe, and the one to whom 
all can look. And once we establish His majesty, His omniscience, His power, His governing glorified state, then we're in the right perspective and attitude to ask whatever might be needed. But glory to Him comes first. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us what we need to get this day properly taken care of. That could be physical bread. It could be spiritual bread. But we don't pray, Oh God, fill up my storehouses physically and spiritually today for the rest of my life. Then we'd never need to pray again because God has given us everything we will ever want or need. Well, that's not the way to approach it. It's basically one day at a time. And he'll say more about that a little later in this same teaching. Give us what we need to get us properly through this day on a physical and a spiritual level. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So he doesn't ask us that everything we owe, whether it be in terms of physical monies or whether it be other debts that we might have, of service, of giving, of loving, of helping, or things that we've not done that we should have done, and therefore we are a debtor. We're not to pray just that our transgressions be forgiven, but in commensurate degree in which we forgive others. So we should always bear that in mind when we're praying, that God is not going to forgive us unless we forgive others. He makes that very clear. We'll read that here in just a few verses. We have something to do before God will do for us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one would be a better translation. Don't, don't let us be taken into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one who is tempting us. God tempts no man, but we are tempted of our own lusts, our own covetousness, our own vanity. And Satan uses our lusts and our vanity to lead us down the garden path into sin and wrong things. Deliver us from that evil. <coughs> and then close with the same thought. For yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory, forever. So we give God glory and praise and recognize His majesty at the beginning of our prayer and toward the end of the prayer then, or at the end of the prayer, we recognize that again. What does that do? It undergirds our faith. It undergirds our trust in Him by having us review what He is and who He is. We are to live by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. So this is this whole form of prayer here is designed to undergird our faith, to strengthen it, to remind us that we're talking to God here. We're not talking to men, and that He can solve our problems. Now, if we have the grain or the faith of a grain of mustard seed, he says we can move mountains. So, it's not easy to live by faith. Human beings live by sight. They worry about this, they worry about that, they worry about something else. God says, you don't need to worry. If you'll obey me, then you don't have to worry. I will take care of you. And that's what we're saying here in this prayer. Forgive our debts as we... Forgive our debtors. Take care of us. Don't tempt us. 
Don't let us be led there. Take care of us. We trust you. That's what we're saying. So people get all excited and worried about this or that or the other thing, and all oh, men are going to do this to us and men are going to do that to us. Where's our faith? Where's our trust in God? That we must come to have. And if we pray in the right way and obey, then our faith is strengthened. If we don't obey, our faith is weakened because uh, that defiles our conscience. And it's hard to pray with trust in God when you're not doing what God says. So we need to be sure that we're very, very careful to obey God in every way, to please Him in everything that we do and everything that we think as much as possible, and then He will follow through and take care of us. Just cast all your care on Him because He cares for you. So we don't have to worry about things. Yes, we need to take care of things sometimes, but we don't need to worry or be concerned. Some people just worry, worry, worry. We know, we know them as worry warts. Well, we need to replace our worry wart syndrome with trust in God. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. How can you twist that out of context in any way? Some people say, well, I just can't forgive that. That's unforgivable. Well, then you also are unforgivable. Because unless you are willing to forgive, God will never, ever forgive you. It's just that simple. He will judge you as you judge others. Sometimes we think we have a special inside track with God and we can just go to Him and get forgiveness without changing our attitude toward others. He mentioned this earlier uh, where he said, don't bring your gift before the altar before you go reconcile with your brother, if at all possible. Do your part. Try. Get it done. Uh, and here he says, forgive others, and he'll forgive you. If you don't, you might as well just forget it. You can go pray all you want, but you're not forgiven, whether you feel like you've been forgiven or not. God doesn't go by your feelings. He goes by what is or is not. You are what you are, and it is what it is. And that's what God goes by, not by your emotions and feelings. We cannot be ruled by emotions and feelings. We have to live by every word of God, not by our feelings. Verse 16, Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they screw their faces up that they may appear to men to fast. They can get this hang dog, uh, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, oh poor pitiful me, look on their faces. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. That is the compassion of man or the recognition that they are fasting from men. That's the only reward they get. You know, really to me it's not worth it to fast just to have somebody say, oh poor you, you're fasting, I know you're hungry. Or, oh, you must be so spiritual since you're fasting. No, I'm not spiritual the reason I am fasting. We need to fast to deny ourselves so that we might recognize how weak, how temporal, how fleshly we are, 
and how that without food and water, we'll feel bad and won't live very long. And that's part of, that's the purpose, is to humble us and to help us get rid of sin. You ever notice that most of your desire to sin kind of goes away after a day or two or three of fasting? It's hard to even want to sin. It's hard to want to do anything when you're fasting because you don't have the food to fuel you to do the things that you might like to do or wish to do. But that goes, tends to go at least, away. So the reward of men or looking spiritual in front of men is not the idea. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, comb your hair, brush your teeth, that you appear not to men to fast, but unto your Father which is in secret. So generally, we shouldn't let people know we are fasting or when we are fasting. That doesn't mean that sometimes we shouldn't talk to each other and say, hey, uh, we need an answer here. Why don't we fast get close to God, get rid of our sins, change our attitudes so that God will hear us? Because that's what Isaiah 58 says the right kind of fast is, to deal our bread to others, to get rid of sin, to uh, to free us from wrong attitudes so that we might pray with the right attitude for someone else. So we're not to appear to fast, but unto our Father which is in secret, and your Father which sees in secret shall reward you openly. So our religion basically should be between us and God, and our light should shine because of our good works, and the things that we do and the service we provide, but not appearing to be spiritual. Because an appearance of spirituality is not spirituality. Real spirituality is doing the things that God says. Then our focus also is approached in verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust does corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. Now, it has always been natural and normal and the way to go for people to lay up treasures on this earth. We have a desire to be wealthy. We look upon the lifestyles of the rich and famous and wish, I guess, that we could be there too. But God says that's not what it's about. Laying up treasure on this earth is not important. What does he say? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust does corrupt, where thieves do not break through or steal. Treasure that is eternal. Treasure that is always there and will always be there for you. So laying up treasure on this earth, being wealthy on this earth, should not be the goal of Christ's disciples. Yes, we have to work. We have to earn a living. We have to be responsible citizens. But we need to be careful that our motivation, our goal, our purpose is not the same goal and purpose of most of the people around us. This world wants to lay up money, treasure. They fight hard to get promotions, better jobs, bigger businesses, whatever it is, so they might be wealthy. shouldn't be our goal. Feed ourselves, take care of ourselves, feed our children, clothe them, have a warm place for them to live. Uh, but not to be spending our lives, our time, our energy trying to become wealthy. It's a wrong motivation. Now, if you're capable and, and without spending your whole life at it, can make money, 
there are and have been wealthy people. There are people that God has blessed even with physical wealth. <coughs> but that isn't the goal, that isn't the purpose. And it, it says that it's very, very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom, like a camel going through the eye of a needle. Pretty hard to do. So <coughs> even if you do become wealthy through inheritance or through just being plain old smart or lucky or whatever, uh, you are lessening your chances at the kingdom of God. Because being wealthy is a strong uh, factor against entering the kingdom of God. Very difficult for a wealthy man not to trust in his wealth instead of in God. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Is your treasure in heaven or your thoughts on heaven? I've been in business times in my life and uh, trying to make money, maybe had the wrong focus at the time, and I made some pretty good money at times, some pretty heavy bread. Uh, just a fact, not bragging about it. Most of it's gone now. In fact, nearly all of it's gone now because I haven't pursued that in a long time. But made pretty good money at times. But you know what it did to me? It made me sit up in bed at night making bids thinking about different jobs, going out and looking for opportunities, and it got to the point that it was consuming my life rather than the things of God consuming my life. Because if you are in a position where you're trying to make a lot of money, then you have to spend a lot of time thinking about it, a lot of time actually making it happen as opposed to dreams or fantasies. It's easy to dream, it's easy to fantasize, but it's hard work to get out there and actually make those dreams come true. And it will consume you if you're not very careful. Uh, I had my own construction company. What did I do? I sat up doing bids late at night, uh, going through numbers, going through figures, trying to get it all figured out, making to-do lists for whoever might be working for me at the time. Uh, they went home, had beer, went to sleep, got up and went to work, expecting instruction from me. Well... I had to keep things organized and going, and that takes a lot of time. Uh, it's not easy. So that isn't where our thoughts, our hearts, our minds ought to be. If you've got a goal of making a lot of money on this earth, then you've got the wrong goal. But where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Is your treasure in heaven? Uh, how much do you support what God is doing here on this earth as opposed to supporting yourself? Things to think about. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye be single, your whole body shall be full of light. If you are focused on God and doing the things that are right, then your body will be full of the light of God. But if your eye be evil or carnal or normal or natural, your whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you be darkness, how great is that darkness? Because you're so busy trying to make money or get wealthy that you don't have time for the light of God. Then he makes it very clear in verse 24, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and riches. Makes it very, very plain. Your goal needs to be the kingdom of God and the things of God and living godly. 
not making money. You simply cannot serve those two masters. You'll either put yourself into making the money or you'll serve God. God tells us that we are to make a living, that we're to take care of our families, we're to pray when we have need for work or whatever, but we are not to focus on becoming rich or making a lot of money because it simply will get your focus away from where it ought to be. And then you'll find yourself going in circles and people tend not to manage things right. They get behind and then they're in panic. Then they have to focus on money. And then I've heard people say, well, I can't afford to tithe right now. I, I believe in it, but I can't afford to. No, you can't afford not to. You have to put God first. Uh, you made your problems financially by mismanagement. Therefore, you need to figure out how to manage things correctly and put God first. If you put God first in your life in every way, these things will work out. You got yourself there. Get yourself out, whatever it takes to do it. But put God first. You can't serve two masters. You put one ahead, anything ahead of God, you're setting yourself up for tragedy. Verse 25, there I, Therefore I say to you, take no anxious, is implied here, not just no thought for your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink. You have to naturally consider what to make for dinner or how you're going to buy the things to make dinner with. Um, obviously you have to think, plan, organize, and work. But it's no anxious thought, no worry. Do you find yourself worrying? Well, then some things need to change. If you're worrying about finances, you need to change some things. Adjust your standard of living. Herbert Armstrong told us years ago, we need to all lower our standard of living. That's not the American way. The American way is raise your standard of living and then work like the Dickens to be able to pay for it. That is a wrong approach to life. We're not to take anxious thought about our life, what we're going to be eating or drinking, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than food and the body than raiment. Don't we have higher goals and purposes here? We need to make a living, but we need to make sure our time is such and our organization and management of our time is such that we can still put God first in our lives and not just be constantly on the rat race of making a living so that that dominates everything in our life. This is hard to achieve, I know, in this society today. Maybe this is the hardest society that has ever been to achieve that in. So it's going to take some work, some rearranging, some thinking, some praying to get things where... We're not worrying. That worry, in many cases, is caused by our excesses or our wrong approaches or our mismanagement. Verse 26, he goes on to explain further. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they. Aren't you more important to God than the birds flying around? Yes, we were made here to become God. And he holds us far higher in regard than he does animals and birds 
despite what the humanists will tell you today, that we all evolved and therefore the birds and the bees and the uh, cats and everything else are ahead of man. It's not the way God designed it. It's not the godly way. No, he created us all, and he created man with a higher purpose, with a spirit in man that makes us above the animals, and we're far more important than the animals and the birds are. So God can take care of us. We need to pray. He give us our daily bread to take care of us, not to worry about it. Uh, yes, have a plan, have a job or have a business whereby you can earn a living for your family. Every man should have his own vine and his own fig tree. He should be able to take care of himself. That is ultimately what God desires of us, not to work for big corporations, but that we might all have our own vine and fig tree and be self-employed. That's the way it will be in the millennium, essentially, and God is trying to get us to that point even today, and that's what these scriptures are about. So it's going to take some time, some thought, some faith, some prayer to have God intervene in a way that we can do that. But right now, uh, we're kind of tied to a great degree to the system, and it's hard to do things God's way and yet survive in man's world. So we need to have faith and trust in him that he will cause things to go in such a way that you can take care of yourself and your family uh, and do it with the right focus on the kingdom of God where our real treasure is. So he's saying here, have faith. Do everything you can to take care of yourself, but don't worry about it. God will take care of you if you're doing the things that he wants you to do. Now, if you're not having your focus right, and you're not doing it God's way, and you are focusing on man or on riches, and then you want God to give you more riches, he's not going to do it. He's not going to do it. He says, if you'll obey me, if you'll take care of finances the way I say, and according to his laws, and give him what he is due, then he will take care of you. But if you're going the other way and then praying in desperation, God, give me more, he's not involved. It's all on you. So then he, he goes on to explain the faith issue more. Verse 27, which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? That's about 18 inches. Can you do that? You can, you can think about it and think about it and grow 18 inches. Can't do it. Why take you thought for clothes? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon could dress himself up with the finest clothing, and he still wasn't as pretty as a flower. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So there he is laying it right out. It is a faith issue. Can God take care of us? Will God take care of us? Do we need to worry about this, that, or the other thing? Or can we simply walk by faith and trust him to take care of the things that we can't take care of? You see, you don't have time to take care of some things when you're focusing on God and his kingdom. Some things you need help with. Otherwise, it will consume all your time taking care of those things that you think you have to take care of. Well, as Dr. Phil says, how's it working for you? You just get 
tighter and tighter and tighter into it, and it's harder and harder to make ends meet the harder you try. So some things we simply have to leave in God's hands. We're here to develop a community, a village, a town, if you will, that is living godly and walking and living in faith. Some things we can do, some things we need him to be involved in and do. Well, if we have our focus right and we're putting him first, he will take care of those things. If our focus isn't right and we aren't serving him in the way that we ought to, then he may leave those things on us and we could have some disaster. We've got to learn to have faith and trust in God that he will take care of the things that are too big for us. Not worry about them or be frustrated about them, but to move forward in faith. Therefore, take no anxious thought, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? How are we going to handle this problem or that problem that man might bring on us or whatever? We don't have to worry about that. Yes, do our part to make food and drink and buy clothes, but not let that become our focus or our worry. If you trust God, you trust God. But we have trouble with our health, with our wealth. We have trouble with our well-being, with our safety. Trusting God. It's just hard for us to turn loose and say, Father, I know you will take care of this for me. I don't see the answers. I don't know the answers. You see, when you know the physical answer, you don't need faith because you have found the answer, whatever it might be. Why do you need faith? No, faith is the evidence of things not seen, answers you don't have, something that is beyond you, and you simply consign it to God and say, please take care of me, Father. And he promises he will. But first you have to trust him. There's always a catch. You've got to trust God. And that is hard for human beings to do. For after all these things, verse 32, the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. It isn't that he's blind and can't see what you need. He sees it before you do. He sees it before you ask. The question in his mind that has to be answered is, will they trust me? That is the eternal question. Will they put me first? Will they focus on me and trust me? It's not that he's blind to our needs. It's a question of whether or not we're willing to go to God and recognize him in God and believe he is God and that he will do what he says if we pray fervently, earnestly, and believingly. Those are the conditions. That's all he's concerned about. That's what he wants to see. Will they trust me? He tested them at the Red Sea. He opened the seas. They walked through. The Egyptians drowned. They looked around and said, there's no rock, there's nothing to drink around here. And they began to whine and murmur and complain and carp and gripe and say, God isn't here. I don't immediately see the answer. I don't see a river of water. I don't see manna or quail or beefsteak or whatever it is we might want. All they had to do was trust God and move forward. And he would have provided. But he had to test them. 
So he got them in that rocky wasteland to see what their attitude would be. And when human beings can't see the answer, they get worried. That's what this whole section is about, is faith. Oh, you of little faith. He spells it out that this whole section is about faith. These are things the Gentiles worry about and seek. But God knows you need these things. So what's the instruction then, verse 33? Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So we don't need to worry about finances. We don't need to worry about this or that. Seek first the kingdom of God. Put our selfishness and self-centeredness aside and not buy the things that put us in debt in the first place because our wants are a lot bigger than our needs, especially in America today, which is a very materialistic society. We think we need this, we think we need that. No, we want this and we want that. And then we buy things that we can't pay for, and then we want God to bail us out. Know what he says. He says, focus on me, on righteousness, obeying me, putting me first, putting your treasure in me and in what I'm doing, and I will take care of you. But we don't believe it by our actions, by our attitudes. We don't believe him. We're not willing to do this. And then we go whining and crying to him for answers for things that we have caused. Now he says, Truly, seek the kingdom of God first, and all these things will be added. That was the way it was on the other side of the Red Sea. Trust me, believe me, walk forward, even if you don't see the answers, and by walking in faith, the answers will come. But if we have to see the answer first, you know, show me some food, show me some water, then I'll trust you, then I'll believe you. Or we put a time limit on God. Well, I'm going to tithe for six months. If you haven't blessed me by then, I, I won't believe it works. I'll quit. Or a year or whatever, you know, in our minds we might set limits on God. Heal me by 3 o'clock next Thursday or I'm going to the doctor. Can we limit God? Can we put constraints upon Him? No, we can't. He just says, follow me. Come along. Do what I say. Seek me first. I'll make sure you're taken care of. You ready to turn loose and do that? Ready to walk by faith? Or are we going to walk by sight? Seek the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Take therefore no anxious thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself, sufficient to the day, is the evil thereof. Well, it's kind of checking my time here. I don't think I can get through uh, the whole of chapter 7 in the next 10, 15 minutes, so maybe we'll just stop there for the day and pick it up at some future time in chapter 7 and try to get this series finished. So that'll be all for today, and we can have a song and, and a prayer, and that'll be the end of the service.